Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast, a place for smart, conservative, non-tribal commentary. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, which uh, which I would appreciate, and uh, I think you'd think would be a good idea. Now, joining me today, uh, we have uh, Jim Swift of the Weekly Standard and Jonathan Last, who joins us again. Okay, guys, I, I know this may not be the sexiest story of the day, given the fact that we're not talking about porn stars today. But the the ongoing story about Facebook and the Zuckerberg attempt to to apologize, non apologize, uh, I think is the biggest story of the week. You know, we we talked uh, yesterday about uh, turning points that we don't know are turning points until afterwards. I don't know, Jonathan. I get the sense that we're kind of at a a, a crossroads when it comes to Facebook and the invasions of privacy. I think so, too, actually. We have a piece up on the site today by Erwin Stelzer. I, I highly, highly recommend it. I mean, I, I would, but it is one of my favorite things that we've published in the last couple of months. And what Erwin does is he unpacks the business model of Facebook. And Erwin himself is a conservative and a free trader, but he says, uh, look, there are all sorts of moments in free markets where the market just is insufficient to provide the corrective that a specific business needs. And he talks about the, the example of both banks uh, and of uh, environmental polluters, because environmental pollution is a just as an economic case, tragedy of commons, which actually you know, cries out for regulation uh, and media. You know, we do have subtle bits of regulation of the media built into the law about things like libel and you know whether or not you're allowed to be complicit in sex trafficking if you're media. And what he argues, and I think very persuasively, is that the government ought to begin looking into to real deal regulating Facebook. And he does not go so far as to say we should break it up or turn it into a public utility, which is what some other people have have argued. Um, but it's it's a tremendous piece, and I, I think everybody should read it. The, uh, the one of the turning points, I think, is this uh, story that broke over the weekend that Facebook had been scraping data from Android phones, which I don't think anybody had seen coming. This guy named uh, Dylan McKay, who apparently owns one of these Androids, uh, says that sometime between November 2016 and July 2017, his archives contained, quote, the, the metadata of every cellular call I've ever made, including time and duration and metadata and metadata about every text message I've ever received or sent. Now, Zuckerberg seems to be responding by saying, well, by the way, you know, we told you this, you agreed to all of this, to which millions of Facebook users are saying, to hell with that, we, we did not give you permission, uh, or at least we didn't know we were giving you that kind of permission. And that strikes me as a, uh, uh, a real, um, again, one of those, and I won't, maybe it's going too far to say that kind of a me too moment, but it, it, it's kind of a recognition of the degree to which our privacy has been just shredded by uh, these these monsters. Jim, you take, Jim. Jim, you read the end user agreements all the way to the end, right? I do, and I am not a sucker. <laughs> I have something called Facebook Lite, and mm -hmm. Facebook Lite was made for people in third world countries. It is one megabyte. It is incapable of scraping all of this stuff, and uh, it's amazing, and you didn't have to download a separate messenger app for it. And it, it's the best. So I, 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 I do read these things, and I, I, I was aware of it. I, I love Irwin's piece, and I think everyone should read it. I think he sort of maybe approaches it with the, I guess, the lack of my, my opinion, which is wanting Facebook to survive in some form. 
I'd be happy if Facebook died. I was listening to a comedian named Steve Hostetter who gives away a free album last night and this album was 10 years old and there was a whole bit about MySpace jokes and how he went to a strip club and the stripper was like, I follow you on MySpace, I'll put you in my top eight. And it was one of these really dated references that I, I doubt really many of the you know younger folks at the Weekly Standard would get. But it's a kind of sobering reminder to me that like 10 years ago, there we, we had an alternative. 10 years from now, will we have an alternative? And, you know, there is always that worry. Regulation leads to preservation. And, um, you know, I'm not sure that Facebook needs to be preserved. So I'm, I'm, I'm personally a little bit dubious. I mean, you, you could regulate in a general sense and that doesn't preserve Facebook. But you know that they're going to have their lobbyists to do that because they want to keep their market share. Well, well and that's the story, of course, is that they are uh, that they're stocking up with lobbyists in Washington. They recognize the political threat out there. Um, but, you know, when you think about it, if, in fact, people do care about, and there's a big if there, really do care about privacy, then shouldn't there be a market for privacy? And isn't there a market solution to this, as you, as you suggest? Why would companies like Facebook and Google be able to hold on to this vast monopoly in a world in which, you know, we have we have the creative destruction of of capitalism, which is on steroids when it comes to technology, right? So is, isn't there a market solution to this? Uh, you know, I, I could answer this for you, Charlie, or or just tagging in from the apron uh, on, on the, the, the wrestling ring here is Bill Kristol, who has just come in and swapped Jim Swift out, and we now have Bill. So you 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 tell me, would you like to have Bill do his anti big tech thing about regulation network effects, or would you like me? We all, we always want yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, that's what I thought. That was the right thing. That was the right thing to say, Charlie. But, uh, but let's hear Jonathan. Let's hear Jonathan first. While I'm with something, I was at this very important meeting, but I'm sorry to be late. Glad to join you no, guys. No, that's, that, that's, okay. that's no problem. It wasn't so, really so an John, important John, meeting. But, you know, again, when I asked the question, there was that if when it comes to whether people care about privacy. I actually wrote a book you know, a couple of decades ago about the end of privacy. And then very shortly afterwards, I sort of shrugged my shoulders and said, okay, this is lost. The, 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 and people actually don't care about it. They say they care about it, but they don't. But if they do care about it, shouldn't there be a market solution to this? Shouldn't there be, you know, privacy, mm. you know, competitors? No. The, the, the answer is no. Because all the value in a social network comes from the network effects. Um, Facebook has no value. None, except for its network effect, except for the fact that it is a monopoly. And so you cannot have five or 5,000 or 50,000 or 5 million people leaving Facebook and have that affect the network at all. It doesn't... It doesn't really work like that. Uh, and and further, the problem is that when Facebook, like a bank, you know, like like a hedge fund, like a, a large financial institution, when Facebook acts badly now, uh, it has effects outside of Facebook and effects in other markets. It affects the political system. It affects the culture. Uh, and so these are the reasons that governments typically get involved in industry and typically step in to regulate. Um, I, I actually wonder, I was thinking about what Jim was saying about how does regulation of, at the end of the day preserve Facebook, and I don't know that it does. I mean, I, this, is, this, is, this is anecdata, uh, but I, I just did a little Twitter poll a month or two ago, and I said, okay, five, four, four corporations, Amazon, Google, Facebook, or Netflix, which of these is still likely to be here in 20 years? Hmm. And I was shocked that last place in all of this, behind Netflix even, 
was Facebook. It was something like, you know, two, uh, literally 2% of the 2,000 people who voted in this silly little poll said Facebook. What I took this to, to mean is that people don't actually put much value in it. They use it because it's there, because it is the monopoly position, and because all the value from that position comes in the network effects. But otherwise, it's it's not really doing anything for them. I mean, this, this is important to, to remember. Out in Silicon Valley, they have a maxim. If you are not paying for the product, then you are the product. And that is that is the position we are in Facebook. I mean, we that, could... That's just the truth. Yeah. So that, That's just the reality. So, Bill, welcome to the podcast. Now, I um, am I reading this correctly that you are heading to Iowa tomorrow? Getting to the important today. stuff here, <laughs> away from these behemoth social media yeah. companies that are or aren't destroying our democracy and concentrating power and wealth in ways that have never <laughs> been seen before. I'm going to speak tomorrow at uh, Cornell College in Iowa. They're kind enough to invite me. They have a speaker series there in Mount Vernon, Iowa. I've never been there. I've heard about it over the years. I remember a couple of friends of mine in high school applying Real there. conservative place, right? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> and they are, Cornell and Grinnell, right, are the two liberal arts colleges yeah. of Iowa, and uh, I think they're liberal as well as liberal arts, so I'll see if I get protested or something, but so far they seem to be you know, treating, treating me well, at least in the sort of pre-publicity. And, and of course, by pure accident, I also was invited to speak in New Hampshire last month. They have this politics and eggs breakfast. I'm sure you've been there, he's, Charlie. He's, he's, he's running. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and, and they invite regular speakers like me, but also, of course, all the politicians speak at this Politics and Eggs Breakfast at St. Anselm. So that actually got postponed by the snowstorm. I am speaking again there on May 23rd. So I'm now going in the right order, Charlie. You'll be glad to know Iowa first and then New Hampshire. Not that I have anything in mind for 2020, but I'm just saying accidentally it happens to be that I'll be in Iowa. And of course, there I'll, I'll pledge my deep belief in ethanol and the, what's that called? The renewable fuel standard they're always talking about out there. <laughs> you have to. And then the first in the nation primary in New Hampshire, I think it's just extremely important for our nation and for our political process. It'd be funny if I just went and gave some sort of ridiculous political and the opioid epidemic. speech. Really concerned about the opioid epidemic. Yeah, yes. Talk about that while you're up there. Pigs. I'm very pro-pork, you know, very worried about competition from pig. Mexican pigs or something. I don't know. <laughs> I guess they're pro <laughs> you, you should bring one of those castrating knives. Yeah, yeah that's Joni Ernst. Yeah, no, I'm leaving that. that that's more her kind of thing, you know. I'm, gets me a little queasy. But anyway, I'm not a, a queasy. Yeah. So yeah. you're going to be talking about 2020. I have to ask because, of course, uh, the cover story in the Weekly Standard is a uh, is a really interesting profile. And we're going to talk about it a little bit later uh, ne- next week. Uh, on John Kasich, whether or not he's going to run as a, as a candidate. So let's just cut to the chase. Is 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 a is a is it Kasich? By the way, is it Kasich or Kasich? Kasich, I think, yeah. Okay, see, I get that wrong. I just pretty much 100% of the time I'm going to get it wrong. Um, is, is he a plausible candidate, um, a third-party candidate in 2020? I think he could be. I mean, I've given up, of course, saying that people are implausible after right. after Trump and after Sanders got 45% of the vote on the Democratic side. Um, look, I mean, he's not perfect in many ways, but you could imagine if Trump were the Republican nominee, a sort of weakened Trump with down to his base support, Sanders or Warren on the Democratic side, Kasich, Kick and Looper, not perfect, but two middle America governors who each served eight years in real states and have real experience and at least they're going to be sober and not crazy and not too partisan. People are sick of the hyper-partisanship, I think, at least they say they are. Uh, whether Kasich's the perfect vehicle for this, uh, I don't know. But it's a good piece by John McCormick. Everyone should read it, and then you and John can talk about it. Yeah, no, he in 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 the piece, I think that uh, that the governor, you know, strikes some right notes. The question is whether or not he is the right guy. There's a certain eccentricity. There's something about him that. I don't know, um, you know, going from Donald Trump to uh, 
to uh, Kasich might be a little bit much for for folks. You know, I uh, you wrote a piece uh, for the Weekly Standard about why you are still a Republican. And, you know, last time we talked about it, you were getting some blowback on it. You know, it strikes me I was looking at uh, a video of, of a focus group of Trump supporters responding to Stormy Daniels and basically saying we don't care, you know, whatever. It's his it's his personal life. And it struck me again that the real shock of the last couple of years has not been Donald Trump's behavior because Donald Trump is Donald Trump and everything was predictable. The real shock is the transformation of the conservative movement, the transformation of the Republican Party. And you watch it in real time and and, and, and maybe because, you know, the, you know the, the, the pace and the volume obscures, you know, how dramatic it is that you know, the, the family value party, the character matters party has become what it is t- today. I, you know, your, your, your thoughts about that. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting down this week to write up an update chapter for my, my book, how the right lost its mind. And, and my focus is, is again, not on Trump. It's on the way in which this party has accommodated him, accommodated itself to him and transformed itself. But you hold out some hope that perhaps they won't, They'll, you know, they they won't be permanently, indelibly stained by this. Yeah, in a way, the 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 rapidity, the speed of the accommodation uh, suggests, in some ways, right, that there could be a speedy unaccommodation, or maybe not. Maybe as uh, Jonathan Lass, I think here to my left, says, uh, wrote eloquently a couple of years ago, Trump corrupts, and maybe once you're corrupted, you can't just get uncorrupted as quickly as you got corrupted. I guess the left would say, oh, you guys are, are, are being nostalgic about a good old Republican Party, a good old conservatism that never really existed. It was always more corrupt, more more racially tinged, more bigoted, more this, more that than, than you people thought. These are all obviously things that we're all going to be talking about and sociologists and political scientists and historians are, are writing about in interesting ways. Um, I guess I hold out hope that there was a better conservatism there really is beneath the surface of better conservatism that the Trump corruption isn't necessarily permanent or as deep as people think. It will take leadership to snap people out of it and also probably events to snap people out of it. Um, but one sees this in life sometimes. People can kind of go into a certain uh, delusion and tribalism for a year or two or three and it doesn't mean they're there forever, right? So. Uh, that's at least well, my I, hope. I, and one should at least right. try. One should at least try because it, it, it's easy to say the party's hopeless. Not easy, but I mean, a lot of people just say it's hopeless and we need to start something new. But just as a practical matter, uh, starting something new is a very big endeavor. And uh, if you think the Republican Party has contributed quite a lot to America in the last 50 years or maybe the last 150 years, you hate to just walk away from it. The Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by RX Bar. Now, RX Bar is a whole food protein bar. What does that mean, really? Uh, it means it's made with 100% whole ingredients. Uh, a couple of years ago, RX Bar called BS on other protein bars because there there wasn't a protein bar out there that wasn't full of artificial ingredients, fillers, and preservatives. That's why RX Bar set out to create a new kind of protein bar with a few simple, clean ingredients where every ingredient serves a purpose. And, you know, it's, it's basically it's like eating three egg whites, two dates, six almonds, whether you like sweet or you like savory, chocolate or fruit flavors. There's an RX bar for you. They have 11 
delicious flavor varieties. They're gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, no added sugar, no artificial colors, artificial flavors, preservatives, or fillers. I have to say that because you know I travel a lot, I, I always want to have one of the bars with me, and they are really lifesavers. And the fact that they're delicious is really an added bonus. So here's a special offer for listeners. For 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com slash standard and enter promo code standard. Again, that's rxbar.com slash standard. Enter promo code standard for 25% off. Thanks for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.